Mary Susan, everybody. Nana. Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for everybody coming and saying hello and wishing me well. Uh, the credit goes to Alcoholics Anonymous, though, because uh, I definitely would not be here. I would not be even, I, I wouldn't even be alive. I was a low bottom, what that's what they like to call it. I was the last gasper. If you do happen to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm in there as a, a last gasper. And uh, not that I match my stories in the book, but I identify with the last gasper. Anyways, uh, there was a reason why I like to, uh, I'm a deadhead anyways, but why I wanted to have the little bit of uh, deadhead music before the meeting and I was listening to it earlier because uh, it was a deadhead that uh, was the one who was instrumental for getting me to my first AA meeting. Um, so let's see how I got there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, too much of the past uh, as far as uh, family stuff goes because I don't really know a lot of it. I was a person that, uh, I don't know, I was brought up in a different era where children were to be seen and not heard. And uh, you got up, you um, did whatever it was. If it was a day that you were supposed to play outside, that's what you did. If it was a day to go to school, you went to school. You came home, you did your homework, you helped your mom get the supper ready. Um, then you could go out um, until the, if it was, uh, you know, daylight savings time you could go out till the street lights came on uh but if it wasn't and it was dark then you didn't get to go out afterwards and that's how it was i had a dog and he was my best friend ever in the whole world right up uh, to this day i miss that dog uh, it was him and i all the way i had a nana and i loved her that's why i i love being a nana she uh was a reader and she was 92 years old, and she lived upstairs over us, and she used to bring me up and stick me in the bed with her, and she would read to me things like um, uh, Alfred Adler, Sigmund Freud, Charles Dickens, all kinds of things. And the reason I know this is some of those books stayed in the family, and I got to see what the titles were that she was reading me. All I was listening to was her voice. And it would soothe me. Uh, so I don't know why I had so much fear as a kid. And I don't to this day. Uh, I, I guess I was just born that way. It was uh, probably a chemical imbalance in my brain that I knew nothing about. And they knew nothing about back then. I can tell you by the time I was uh, 13, I was completely anorexic. And they didn't know about that back then either. I'm 75. They'd never even heard of it, I don't think. Um my mother used to tell me all the time, you have to put some food in your body. And I might open up a can of mushrooms and eat them and not the kind that we ate later in the 60s either. And, um, you know, that would be enough for me. And I was constantly riding my bike and uh, doing exercises at night. I, I had to have my waist be a certain size. And I was absolutely petrified uh, when I went to school of anybody looking at me or talking to me. And when we went out, uh, you know, in the playground for our, our recess and they would play kickball and stuff like that, I would uh, hide as far back as I could because I didn't want to get picked. But at the same time, I would feel horrible that nobody even wanted me to play. 
And um, I pretty much carried that throughout life, too. I like to be invited. I just don't want to have to show up. (laughs) Anyways, um, that's kind of a, you know, I was just very reclusive. I was a reader. I was very quiet. I was always up in the woods with my dog, uh, riding my bike long distance. Um, I wasn't much of a joiner, even as a, a youngster. So, and then when I got to high school, uh, it was the same. I was an observer. I used to watch everybody. I hear uh, this girl getting called down the office all the time for getting in trouble for smoking. She get in trouble for uh, <laughs> drinking, getting caught. And I think, wow, I want to know her. I want to hang around with her. She was like my hero. And I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to, to find where she was or hook up with her or anything. And uh so I didn't have that. I didn't get to do that during high school. Anyways, I had to go home, do the same thing, my chores, my homework, all that stuff. And it wasn't because anybody beat me. It was expected and it was expected of just about everybody in my neighborhood. So it didn't seem unusual to me. It was pretty good life. I was safe and cozy and we had a good home. And my father was uh, really my grandfather and my mother was really my grandmother and I never got to know that until uh, I was probably 60 years old when I found that out Um, but anyways I always wondered why they were so old and I couldn't figure it out one time I asked my mom how how come you're so old and she said I'm not old I said oh okay she seemed old to me but I did suffer from their old ways she lucky thing for me she was Irish And she would temper my Italian father down beautifully. She'd say, now, Joe, this is America. You're not over in Italy anymore. And she's got to learn how to be out there as Americans get out there. And my father would just go out in the garden and he'd be mad for the day. But he wouldn't say anything more. He'd just go toil in the garden. I might have been wanting to go to a library or something. It wasn't like I was asking to go out and drink, I was asking to go to the library, and he saw no reason for me to be doing that. What do I need to do that for? He didn't know why girls needed to go to school. It was a changing of the times. Women were starting to be more in the workforce. Uh, People were being left home while their mothers were working. It was a changing environment, and the old-timers didn't like it any more than this old-timer likes the changes that are going on in the world today. Um, It was very foreign and very scary for all of them. They didn't know what was going to become of us. But anyways, uh, after I graduated, I had heard it enough times that uh, once you're 18, you you can move out if you want and do what you want. But as long as you live in this house, you do what I say. So I couldn't wait to be 18. And at 18, I got up from an apartment, a flat with my with the girl from high school that I had always wanted to hang around with. And uh, first start right out of the gate uh, for my birthday. I can actually remember when we started hanging out. It was my birthday in October, and she brought a case of beer for us. And uh, we were out in the parking lot to the school. Imagine if you did that in the school today. We were out in the parking lot to the school drinking those beers, and then other people showed up, and the lights came on, and you know, it was like life began for me. I couldn't believe it. It was just amazing. I was having the best time ever. And nobody was making me do anything. Nobody. I was just free to be me. 
And I was going to chase that free to be me for a long time. And I didn't know that what I was doing was uh, digging my hole into prison. Uh, You know, the prison in your mind that alcohol brings you to. I didn't know that. I thought I was free, but I wasn't free when I went home. And I began my lying to my mother. And I began the shame that I would carry inside of me. I wouldn't be able to look at her because I knew I was lying to her and I had never lied to mom before. And then I, I had a young, was like a boyfriend, not really. We kind of hung out. We, we kind of thought we were girlfriend, boyfriend, just kids, you know. Uh, and uh, he'd come over to the house and I wouldn't be there because guess where I was? I was now following Sharon around everywhere she went because she was buying the booze and she knew where all the parties were. And um, I didn't want to just hang out with him and ice skate or go for a long bike ride anymore. So he'd be at my mother's having a great old time with my mother and father. She'd be feeding them food and I'd be off and running with my friends. And when I come back, I'd shrug and he'd be all mad because I didn't tell him. And I left him there with my parents and I just shrug and my mother would say, don't you ever do that again to anybody? And I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't mean to, but I did it. And uh, I was going to do that a lot because uh, the call of the wild, you know, I was watching that movie the other night and I was thinking how that was much like what alcohol was for me. It was the call of the wild. It was the sixties. And, um, I experienced the 60s to the fullest. I can remember it being at work just like it was yesterday. And I was sitting at my desk and one of my other friends that liked to drink with me and I liked to drink with her at worked at the same job. And she says to me, why don't we go to California? And I said, California? We can't go to California. She said, sure we can. I said, but we got to be at work. And she said, no, we can just leave. I said, what do you mean leave? You have to give a notice. She said, no, you don't. This is a stupid job. You can get another one of these jobs anytime. And I said, well, I suppose. I said, well, what am I going to tell my mother? She said, well, tell her anything. Tell her you're going on vacation with somebody. So I went home and I told my mother I was going on vacation with my friend Sharon's parents and, and her. I was lying. And my mother didn't expect me to lie. She didn't think of me as a liar. So she took me at my word. And I was over 18 and I was living in an apartment. So she just accepted what was going to happen. My father, on the other hand, wouldn't say a word to me. He just went out in the garden. So I knew what he was thinking. So uh, anyways, he did give me a ride to the airport, though. And when I went to say bye, he just left. Because he wasn't going to take part in condoning any of it. He knew I was wrong. And uh, but that's how that happened. And then um, my mom did tell me that they didn't speak for two weeks after that because he was so upset that she let me go as if she could stop me. But anyways, after after L.A., I went and uh, I went on the magical mystery tour. I still laugh about it because, you know, it was fun. The magic was fun until the magic turned tragic and it hadn't turned tragic yet. It was fun to me. I was a teenager, I was an adolescent, and I was off to L.A., um, and I, I was in the hippie movement. I went out there, and I had my tie-dye on, and I was selling the free press, and I learned how to smoke pot out there and drop acid, and I knew there were now, I knew there were 
there were whites and there were reds and there were Christmas trees and they weren't the ones you're going to be putting up for Christmas. <laughs> they were in a little capsule and they would take you where they took you. And I can't tell you how many times I woke up somewhere saying, what floor is this? What am I, why am I on the floor? And I'd be listening to something because we had record players back then. And they'd have Inagata DeVita on. I don't know if any of you remember that one. I'm sure Howie does. Anyways, it was playing. And it's the longest goddamn song in the world, especially if you're on acid. And uh, I can remember laying there listening to it, wondering, where the hell am I? You know, and it was fun till it wasn't. Until one night we were having a big, it was, I guess you could call it a party. It was more like people just kind of wandered in and wandered out. And there was a bunch of us and there was a pool and it was empty. And one of the kids on acid went out and tried to dive in the pool and they died. And, uh, uh, you know, we all just kind of looked at it and thought, wow, that's really wild. That's, geez, wow, what a bummer. And we went back to smoking pot and we were all high anyhow. And the cops came and we all stayed in the room watching them thinking, wow, this is wild. Don't anybody even think drugs because they'll know. They'll know we got some and they'll be in here. (laughs) That's the way it was back then. I'm laughing because it just seems so funny today, but it wasn't funny then. And then later on, uh, some drugs got stolen and uh, they happened to have belonged to some biker club. And uh, I knew who did it. She actually asked me to keep somebody busy while she did it. And uh, so, you know, I was making out with somebody so she could do what she was doing. And I was on acid anyways. I don't think I even really knew the whole thing, what was going on. But I got in a lot of danger, a tremendous amount of danger. And uh, they were looking for me. And this guy um, brought me to his home uh, in the San Fernando Valley. And he said uh, he had been watching me for a while because I reminded him of his daughter. And his daughter had a cocaine habit. And I didn't do cocaine. So, of course, that didn't have anything to do with me. And he had had to get her in a rehab. And he was kind of worried about me. And he knew, uh, he said to me, can you put food in your body? And, well, I don't know when the last time I ate was. Um, He tried to make something. I couldn't put the food down. So he had me take a hit of opium so I could calm my stomach so I could have some food. I had been probably about two months since I had eaten. I didn't even know it. And he knew what was going on with the bikers. So he decided to call somebody and uh, get me home to New England. And uh, he did. And I got home and uh, went back home with my parents. And uh, sometimes people take geographical cures away from their parents. And I always end up taking a geographical cure back to my parents. But I'd get there and what would happen to me is I would get completely depressed if I didn't have any kind of alcohol or drugs in my body. And I would stay in my room and I wouldn't come out. I'd be, I'd have these, we had shade darkeners back then that when you pulled them down, it was completely dark in your room. And I loved it. And I wouldn't come out and I didn't eat. I have always had that uh, tendency towards anorexia or bulimia. I switched back and forth. And uh, so I didn't care if I ate or anything. And I was just laying there doing nothing, never not going anywhere. Life had just ended because I had to go home. 
So my mother got worried and she called Sharon and she said, uh, will you please come get her out? There's something really wrong with her. So Sharon was like, sure. So her and a couple of my friends came and they brought me some black beauties and they gave me some speed. And, uh, you know, a little while later, I was cured and out we went. And that's when I fell in love with the bar scene. We started going to bars and uh, they went to bars like uh, people like to go dancing and maybe like to visit a nice club. And I don't know what happened to me, but when I went in there, I fell in love. That was that was like home to me. And that was going to become what I would, would take me down in the end. I won't go through the rest of it. But uh, that's where that was. And uh, I'll tell you back, and I'll go to skip up to 1995. I mean, 1985. In 1985, I could no longer function. I had been living in a very extremely abusive marriage. He did nice things to me, like try to throw me out a window pregnant. Then he tried to throw me out the window on a second story. I say he set my hair on fire uh, because I didn't cook the steak right, or no, maybe I didn't buy it in the right store. That's what it was. Uh, I was not a kind person that called people and told them these things. I was so embarrassed and ashamed and sure it was my fault that I would just cry and become depressed. And I wouldn't tell anybody. I would be horrified to tell my mother and father this. And I had kids and, you know, this is what they lived with. They lived with a very depressed mother who cried all the time and um, a father that was proactive alcoholic, liked to throw things through the window and beat people up. He was like that. No matter where he went, if he went out, he'd come back. People would just throw him at the door sometimes. The police back then were not like they are today. If I, a neighbor called and said, I think that woman's being beaten, they'd come to the house and they'd take him for a ride and they'd say, now you be a good boy. And they'd bring him home and they'd say, he's going to be a good boy now. If you have to call us again, then we'll come back and get him. And I knew then I was going to get another beating because he's going to think I called them. And uh, he said, and then the cop turned to me and said, now, why don't you be a nice little wife and make yourself, your, your husband something to eat and he'll calm right down. That's how they handled it back then. And that's not unique. I know many people that went through this. So anyways, uh, that just went on. It just went on like that. And it just became normal with, abuse became normalized and I don't know what it was for the kids because uh they in they they took it all in and they internalized it and whatever's going on in their life today as a result of it uh I'm accountable I I don't mind showing up and talking about it but nobody talks about it so but that went on and I'm fully aware of it and uh, my oldest boy became uh the fixer He'd calm his, his dad down. He'd be the one that would try to get him not to hurt me by distracting him, playing cards and the whatnot. And uh, I didn't know. I didn't know. And he'd help us get out if he was, like, really getting bad, like throwing the TV set or something. My son would help us get out of there. And we would go walk in the dark. 
Sometimes we'd hide if he came looking for us. One time we were hiding in trash barrels so he wouldn't find us. He was 12 years old and he said to me one day, Mom, why is he always in there and we're out here? And I heard him and I said, I don't know. He said, well, I don't think we should have to be out here. I think he should have to be out here. I said, well, you're right about that. I went to my first Allen on me, and now I'm still drinking on the side. And when I say on the side, I mean I'd take a drink, and the drink would take a drink, and the drink would take me wherever it took me, and I'd lie and say anything I could to cover my tracks. But I go to this Al-Anon meeting, and I think that at Al-Anon, what they do is tell you how to get your husband sober. That's what I think it's about. So I go to the Al-Anon meeting, and they say to me, you can see how sick he is. Can you see how sick you are? And I said, well, I can. That's why I need him out. And they said, well, that's not what we do here. But we, sh- we will tell you this, that if he's abusive, you should keep a bag by the door somewhere outside so you can get out safely. And if you see him start to get agitated, then get out sooner. And please think about going to Hawk. Now, Hawk, for those that you don't know, is help for women and children, abused women and children. And uh, I thought, oh, yeah, then he'll really kill me. So I but I put it away in the back of my head and it went on, it just went on. And then the day came when he was up on top of the roof, a second story roof. In his underwear, drunk as anything. He was a progressed alcoholic. And he had my little one up there, and he was telling him to jump. And the police were there. I was coming home from school. I had gone back to school. And I was coming around the corner, and I see the cops there. And he's got him up on top of the roof, and he's telling them, oh, here comes your mother. Go get her. And the police are trying to get the kid down without him slipping, falling, and jumping. And he goes back inside the little window that he went in that led to the attic. And the police go up there and he's in his underwear and he's got a fly swatter. And he's trying to hit the cops with the fly swatter and they arrest him and the kid watches all of this. And that was the last time that that man ever was in my house. Um, I went, I gave in and even being a sick alcoholic, I did some things right. Uh, I let them put me in a shelter, me and the little one and the other two they put in camp. Uh, My daughter was multiply birth defective. She's in this picture. I'm taking care of her as best I can. And they go away to a camp. And I'm in this uh, home, the shelter. And they're talking to us uh, about abuse and domestic issues. And I can hear the girls talking themselves into going back. And I say to myself, wait a minute, that's what I do. I always talk myself into going back. Oh, I can't do it this time because he's going to kill one of the kids. I don't think I even cared if he would kill me. I just didn't want him to hurt the kids. And uh, so I said to the woman, what can I do about this? And she said, well, you can work with Hawk. So uh, I worked with Hawk. They got the kids secure in a camp in Maine. Uh, I live in Massachusetts. And they were there for a month. And they got an eviction notice from the court that, was a criminal eviction notice, so he was not to ever enter any part of the city. And uh, they got him out. And uh, he laughed the whole way and said, she's the one that's nuts. Look at, she's got one of them books on the counter. And it was an Alcoholics Anonymous book somebody had given me, and it was just sitting there. 
It wasn't even anything I had opened yet. And uh, he said that to the cop. And he said, go look in the medicine chest and you'll see all the pills. Well, that was true. I had a bunch of pills I was saving just in case I needed to kill myself. So the psychiatrist used to give them to me and I used to store them. I wouldn't take them. I'd store the bottles. So I knew what I was doing. I knew I had some stuff that if it got bad enough, I could just get out of this. And uh, you'd think after getting him out that then life would get good and everything would go back to normal. But see, I'm an alcoholic and a drink was waiting for me. And um, it wasn't going to go away just because I got the man out and I was going to school and I was starting to do some things better for myself. I joined a gym. I was riding my bike long distance. So I was having a new start on life. And then the thought occurred to me that, geez, I wasn't having any fun. Now, where do you go to have fun? You go down or up to dance. And where do you go dancing? I didn't know people went dancing in sober places. I didn't, I don't know if I, that would have even appealed to me. But I got lots of friends that go dancing. Look at our friend Dave from Scotland. He dances everywhere and does the tango. I mean, I didn't even know that world existed. I don't know if I would have took part in it. But the only place you went was to a club. And so I go to the club with the intention of dancing. But, you know, I'm scared and I'm afraid and I can't be anywhere where I got to get in the spotlight and get up on the dance floor unless I steady myself with a drink. So once again, I took a drink, the drink took a drink, and the drink took me. And boom, my life dissolved. And this time I wasn't going to get out of it. This time booze was going to hold on to me much longer. King Alcohol had a hold of me and was giving me something a freedom I felt that I didn't have at home. I felt safe when I drank, and it was so insane. I was with the most unsafe people you could find on the planet. I was drinking in a city where half of the mafia hung around in the bars where I was drinking, and they weren't nice to women, and I was in there drinking. The Hells Angels were in there. They weren't nice to women. And I was there and that was home and I felt safe there. It was insane. But it was my oasis. And what ended up happening was it was just me and my world got smaller and smaller. I ended up in front of the bartender and this is where I would stay. I'd be in front of the bartender. That way there I could get my alcohol quicker. I wouldn't have to wait for it. And I wouldn't have to talk to people. I have anything to do with anybody that was in the bar room. And I felt like I was in my living room. And I was with one of my best friends, talking to Butchie the bartender. Never forget it. I believe for a little while he was keeping me alive because I didn't know that I had become so alcohol dependent that without it, I would go into seizures and I would die. I didn't know that. And, uh, he knew that from looking at me. So we would drink and he would talk. And I would go there and I would go there like somebody uh, was going home. And so more and more I wasn't at the house with the kids. More and more I had no idea what was going on with them. More and more my oldest boy was in charge. And he was no better than I was. He was into drugs and alcohol journey of his own. 
And so that left my disabled daughter and my little son and a crazy ex-husband who was throwing beer bottles at the house and stalking us and all kinds of shit. It was a, it was a shit show. And I didn't know how to get out of it. So I started thinking, well, I should be dead. Because if I was dead, then everybody would be better off. And I'd be sitting at the bar having alcoholic seizures. I'd go into a seizure. I'd end up in the hospital. I'd have to pull the IVs out, get out of there because I couldn't breathe. I didn't know where I was. I, I really think I had alcoholic dementia at that point. Uh, I, I couldn't think straight at all. I just knew I had to get out of there. I had to get out of everywhere. I had to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And um, I'd walk out of a hospital in a Johnny, double Johnny. I'd have one on the back and one on the front. Wouldn't know where my clothes were, my shoes. That wasn't new. Often I was losing them. So, and walk down the street. That didn't mean nothing to me. I'd done that many times drinking. And I'd get into a into a little bottle store that knew me and they'd give me a little bottle to get me home and I had stuff stashed at home and I was safe again see how insane it is I was safe I was dying and I was safe I was in danger and I was safe I had no clue and I can remember this and I talk about it all the time when I tell my story I was laying on the floor on a mattress in my room yeah, actually, it was the living room. I had put a door between me and the kitchen. And in the kitchen, I had my couch, the TV, there was food, there was the toy room, and there were the kids' bedrooms in the bathroom. So I was kind of segregated. So I put a little hook and eye over the door so the kids couldn't come in unannounced because you never knew who was in the room or what I was doing in there. And I thought that was normal. I don't even know where that came from. That is not how I was brought up. This is where booze took me to. But I was laying there and I could hear the kids and I thought, I was crying and I thought, if I could just care about something, why can't I care about anything? I can't care about anything. What's wrong with me? And I was crying and I said, just let me care about something, please. And I tried to get up because I was going to make breakfast. And I couldn't unless I drank something because I was so shaking. I was so alcohol dependent by now, physically. And I drank whatever was there that I could find. And then I could stand up. But by then I forgot. Once I had the alcohol inside my body, I forgot what I was thinking before. And once again, my son had to make breakfast, get the kids ready, and they had to go to school. And then he went and skipped school. That was what he, why he, That was what was in it for him. If he got them out the door, he could skip school because he knew I wouldn't know. I had no clue what was going on in my own life at all. The school called me one time and said he was out 26 days in a row and they were going to suspend him. And I thought, what the fuck kind of school was this? That they wait 26 days to tell you that your kid didn't go to school. I'm mad at the school. I'm not even thinking about what they're telling me. And they had been trying to reach me, but they couldn't get a hold of me. You know why? I had an answering machine. You know what my answering machine said? I'm not kidding about this. So block your ears if you don't like profanity. It said, if you're a bill collector, fuck off and die. That's what my answering machine said. <laughs> and the school was calling me and hearing this. 
the doctors were calling me and hearing this. So they put this thing out. It's called, uh, now let's see, a 52A or a 51A. Anyways, the two of them are interchangeable. One's if you're just plain neglecting. The other's medical neglect. So they put a medical neglect out on me because of D. And I wasn't showing up for the doctor's appointments. I could have sworn I was, I had been there. I could have sworn I had been there, but I hadn't. And uh, so that's what they did. And the social services come into the picture. And they did what they currently do now on TV is everybody like watches it and thinks about it. Oh, as an intervention back then, it was very unheard of. And uh, anyways, there was 30 people in this intervention. I was one of them. And I had to sit in the middle of these 30 people while they proceeded to tell me what my life was like. And they had my kids there embarrassing me. That's all I know. Why are they embarrassing me in front of my children? And there was a couple of neighbors there that were going to, I guess you call it, testify about what my life was really like. And they wanted to talk about all the shit I was doing, pulling up in a truck with some guy naked and I was naked and we were drunk and throwing bottles on the lawn and he wanted it to stop and I was thinking, did that happen or is he making that up? Anyways, I knew he was cheating on his wife. So I said, what the fuck are you doing here saying anything, you asshole? I know about you. And that's where that took me. Didn't help me at all. I don't think they really knew what to do about alcoholics back then. Anyways, uh, I'm not even sure they thought I was an alcoholic. I don't know what they thought. They thought that worked. And if I didn't behave, then I was going to have my kids taken away. How am I supposed to go behave? I didn't even know I needed a defense against a drink. I didn't know that alcohol was causing all these problems. And I'd just go home, pull myself up by the bootstraps and try again. But I never, ever once thought maybe I shouldn't drink. Never. That did not, was not part of the equation. And if you tried to make it like that, I would have just got rid of you. I would have just yesed you to death until you went away. And then I would have made sure you didn't get back to talk to me ever again, because there's something wrong with you. Anyways, uh, that's the condition I was in in 1985. And uh, I had at some point in time gone to OA and now... Remember, I have a problem with anorexia, and I had gone through a period of time that I wasn't uh, eating because I was drinking. I, it wasn't anorexia, it was plain up alcoholism, but I thought in my head it must be from anorexia. So I went to this OA meeting, and <laughs> I said, I need to get back in the day because now instead of overeating the bulimia, I'm, I'm not eating at all. And they said, you look, you look like hell. We tried to tell you you have alcoholism. You smell like a brewery. Look at you. Your liver's protruding. And I said, no, I, you never told me that I had alcoholism. They said, we did. I said, no, you didn't. We told you to go to AA. I said, oh, I thought you wanted me to go there to meet sober guys because my husband was a drunk. And so what I needed was a sober guy. They said, no, that's not why we told you to go there. I said, oh. So she said, I'll tell you what. Here's a meeting in Lawrence at the noontime meeting. That was December 13th when I got sober. She said, uh, if you don't go to that meeting, I'm going to come up and I'm going to take you to the one at night. 
And I thought, nobody's coming to my house and taking me out like I'm some kind of moron. Absolutely not. You are not coming to my house and embarrassing me. I'll go to the damn meeting. You'll see. I don't need to go to AA. So I went to the meeting, the Lawrence Looney Nooney. And there were people in there that they were they were as sick as I was coming off of booze. And um, there was a guy sitting next to me who had these sores on his arms. He had a short sleeve shirt on. I said, what are those? He said, oh, those are wine sores. I had wine sores, but I had covered them up with a long sleeve shirt. So I started getting nervous. I couldn't possibly have what he's got. And then I thought, no, they, they got to be wrong. It's got to be some kind of, you know, sexual disease. It's got to be one of them, an STD. And then they were talking about where booze took them and what it did to them. And I, I was just spellbound because I didn't know where booze had taken me, but I knew something was really wrong. And I didn't know what it was, but I looked around the room and they looked like they were shiny and new and laughing and talking to each other. And I thought, I can never be like these people. I'll never be like these people. I felt like I was damned if I do and damned if I didn't. I really felt if I didn't drink, I'd die. And I might have because I was alcohol dependent. And if I, if I didn't, I was going to die anyways. But I was going to die a horrible, horrible death. And uh, I knew that. I knew that inside of me because I, I just knew some of the things that happened to me. Coming home from the bar and the shit. I didn't want those things to happen anymore. And uh, they said, well, you know, if you don't drink today, we'll start again tomorrow. Don't drink today. And a whole bunch of people gave me their numbers and said, give us a call if you're thinking of drinking. I promise you, and I know where I am. I'm, I'm in a free thinkers meeting. And many of you, my, many of my friends are secular and some of them aren't. But I promise you, not one person there said to me, you need to get on your knees and fucking pray. What they said to me was, you need to stay away from a drink today, just today, go hour by hour. If you're having a problem, and this was in 1985, and it was a, it was a room full of Catholics recovering, and they didn't say that to me. They let me be sick, and they knew I needed to live, and they knew if I did that, then I could start to sort these things out for myself. And they gave that to me. That was the best gift they could ever give me. So I end up having to call somebody because I really didn't think I'd have a problem. I thought, sure, I'll go home. I won't, I won't have to drink. Don't worry about it. And I went home and I tried to stay away from a drink. And the longer I tried to stay away from it, the worse sick I was getting booze sick. Not everybody gets booze sick that comes to AA. You don't have to. I did, though. And uh, I was throwing up and... I was seeing things, and I thought somebody was in the house. I was starting to hallucinate. I didn't know it was because of booze, but I called this woman. I couldn't believe it. I called her up and said, I'm not having trouble drinking. It's nothing to do with that. But I think somebody's in the house, and I'm afraid. She said, I'll be right over. So she come over. She walked around. She said, no, I don't see anybody here. Kids are sleeping. I said, okay. And she goes, and she looks through everything. She says, boy, you got a lot of booze around here. And I said, well, I'm not going to drink that. She says, you sure of that? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to drink it. 
She says, okay, well, then why don't we dump it down the toilet? And I said, dump it down the toilet? Why would we do that? She said, well, you're not going to drink it, right? Well, I might have company. When's the last time you had company? I don't know, but, you know, somebody might want it. She said, I think it'd be best if we dump it down the toilet. Now, my street head is going, the only way I can get this woman out of here is dump that fucking booze down the toilet. Fine. Let's dump it down the toilet. Great. I can get more anyways. I'll play your silly game with you. So we go in the bathroom and she's hands it to me. I said, what are you giving me this for? She says, you dump it down the toilet. I said, me? I thought you were going to dump it down the toilet. And now I got sweat pouring off my head. I want to drink it so bad. And she's telling me to pour it down the toilet. I start crying and I fall onto the floor in a heap. So she pours everything down the toilet. She helps me get in the shower. She showers me up. I'll never forget it. She sat with me the entire time. And I had no idea that I was detoxing at home. None. But she knew. And she stayed with me. And then she had to leave. And she said, if you get yourself to the noontime meeting, I'll give you a ride home. And I walked all over the city. That didn't mean nothing to me. And it was the dead of winter. I said, yeah, I'll see you there. I had no intention of going. But I wanted to drink so bad. And I wanted, I was damned if I did, damned if I didn't. I wanted to prove to that woman, not her, the woman that sent me there, that I didn't need AA. And if I drank, then she was going to know I needed AA. And there was going to be a whole nightmare. So, damn it, I'll just walk to the meeting. So I said, okay. So I go back to the meeting, and I'm in rough shape. And people are coming up to me. I can't even hold a coffee cup. And there was this guy, Duke, there. He died at 17 years sober of a heart attack. He was the kindest man. And he would say, don't get discouraged. It's going to be all right. Just come along with us. And one day, I was 30. I was I was three months away from a drink, and I didn't even know it. I thought I was still drinking. I was still having drunk dreams. I thought I was drinking. And uh, Duke come in, and he said, you know, you, you have no weight on you. You got to put some weight on you. I said, I know what I, I can't eat. So he goes, oh, all right. And then the next day, he comes in, and he goes, you know what? My wife always, she just don't listen. I tell her all the time, don't make me a whole sandwich. I can't eat it. Can you help me out and eat half this sandwich for me? And it was the first food I had been able to swallow since I started getting sober. And he knew that I couldn't handle much, but I was able to hold that down. I was so happy. I thought for sure I was going to throw it right back up, but I didn't. You know, when people would get me like a half a cup of coffee, my hands would be shaking so bad and they'd tell me it was all right. I was so embarrassed. I'd go home and the kids would look at me and I'd want to hide because I knew I had left them and I wasn't who I was meant to be. And I was ashamed. I was so ashamed. I thought the shame was going to kill me. I needed a drink so bad and I didn't want to have to go back to it. I needed it. I had no choice but to call these people because I wanted it so bad. I had the taste. Anybody have the taste? where you can actually taste alcohol still in your mouth. And I had it, and uh, 
I don't know, it was the hardest thing I ever did getting sober. I did it little by slow with the help of a lot of people. If I had known anybody was going to start trying to tell me what to do, they wouldn't have gotten my house. I guarantee you that. The whole deal would have been off. So I understand when my friends say people come up to them and tell them what to do and it makes them leave. I, I get that. I get that. But that's not what happened to me. You know, it's just not what happened to me. It's been a long, long road, 38 years. And uh, what's helped me the most are the original things that were said to me. You don't have to drink even if you want to drink. But you might have to come along with us. Not everybody can just put the drink down. Some people need help. Just come along with us. It's okay. It's not a moral issue. You know, one day at a time. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Just stay sober for today. You'll learn how to do everything you need to do in time. Just stay sober today. I'd hear things in the meeting. I'd use it against myself. I'd hear the steps. You're doing this. You do that. I said, what am I going to do? I can't clean any of this shit up. I, I don't know how to change any of this. They say, it's ah, uh, you don't have to worry about that right now. Just don't drink because I wasn't ready. You'll know. You'll know when you can. I was eight years sober before I could get a job. And the only reason I even tried it was I was embarrassed because people were working and I wasn't. So they said, well, then go get a job if that's how you feel. And I got a job <laughs> working with uh, collections, calling people up to pay their bills. And it made me realize I wasn't paying my bills. And I would cry over it. And I wouldn't want to ask them for money, especially the old people. I spent more time in the bathroom crying because I didn't want to have to ask these people for money <laughs> to pay their bills. And I was constantly giving them deals. But you know the one thing I did do right? The one thing I did do right was I showed up every day. And you know why I showed up every day? Because I showed up every day in AA from the first day I ever got here. It taught me, it trained me to show up, whether I liked it or not. And I didn't like a lot of fucking meetings, but I loved some of them. And I showed up every day at that job. And when I finally couldn't take it anymore being there, and I quit, I, was, I had worked there five years, and they gave me a payout check, a bonus. For, they gave me a certain amount of money, I forget what it was, a dollar for every single day I had showed up on time and not been late back from break. And I was absolutely astonished that I got that money. It was, it was a lot of money. And uh, I had done something right. I had done something right. I began to be able to hold my head up a little bit because I had done something right. I learned how to pay my rent on time. I learned how not to let my husband back in the house. I learned how to be divorced. I learned how to go back to school. I got my degree finished because that got taken away from me because of booze too. And I got that straightened out. And uh, I took care of my daughter and uh, it's amazing the adventure we've been on with her. At 13, my son got hit by a car and uh, he, his face was disfigured. I didn't drink during that. And then uh, at 30, he got hit head on on a motorcycle. And uh, I was away, oh, six hours away up in Maine with some people from AA. And I tried to run back from Maine 
literally on the highway. I got out of their car and said, you're not going fast enough. And I was trying to run to get to my son because I thought they said he was dead. And uh, he was near dead, but he wasn't dead. And uh, the police finally come over and they helped us get there. And I got up to the hospital and, you know, uh, people helped. People helped me to help him. And uh, then my ex-husband, he... He uh, drank and smoked himself into losing his legs. It was very painful. And my kid came to me and said, please help, Dad. I said, oh, I just learned how to keep this man out of my life. And uh, he said, please help him, Ma. So I said, I'll go look. And I looked, and his legs were black. And I called the surgeon, and they started cutting his legs off. And he never did get sober. Um, He never stopped smoking. Uh, He ended up uh, having cancer of the esophagus eventually. Uh, They took his esophagus out. Uh, He lived a little while longer than an aneurysm. Then gangrene set in, and I was his medical proxy by now, the man who beat me. I was his medical proxy. And as his ex-wife, they had to have these conferences every day with me to make sure I wasn't going to make a decision to off him just because I wanted to off him. Honestly, went through this every day. And I'd have to see his sores, which were rotting. And uh, it was horrible. My family went through hell. I went to a meeting every single day. I heard nothing. I saw nothing. I just knew that somebody helped me get in the meeting and out of the meeting. And it was like I was in a fog for months. And then they buried him. And it was two years before I could close my eyes because I kept seeing his sores and his wounds and remembering the last conversation I had with him in hospice. He said, what am I doing in hospice? And I said, well, he goes, is there no hope for me? And I said, well, you're very sick. And he said, "Uh, well, then can you get me a drink? And I thought he was going to ask me for alcohol, and they give you that in hospice. And I said, what would you like? And he said, "Uh, some cranberry juice I said okay I went and got him cranberry juice and he drank it and that was the last conversation I ever had with him and he died and uh, these experiences hurt so bad but AA helped me to carry on to be able to do the things I needed to do at home to take care of the kids to be a source of comfort and strength for them and not become the problem that needed to be held up by them. And because AA was holding me up. So I have a tremendous love for Alcoholics Anonymous. And those steps weren't there to hurt me. They were there to help me if I needed to use them. They were just suggestions. And I started doing them because it took the shame, guilt, and remorse away from me. I don't know what else it did. All I know is that for me, I felt like I was doing something to correct the damage that I had done. Today, I know it was a living amends. That staying sober was an amends, a living amends, and that was a living and amends. And I had lots of fun and lots of joy, and I was a deadhead, and uh, I I started out with the deadhead thing, and I'm going to finish with it. 
it was the this guy Mark was in my life, and uh, he was a deadhead, and his mother was uh, recovered five years in Alcoholics Anonymous. He lived in Pennsylvania, and he had come to Massachusetts, and uh, he helped me for the first three years. He helped me. He took care of the kids. He cooked for us. He helped me get to meetings. He was like this, in AA, we call them Eskimos around here. It was this Eskimo that came into my life, and he helped me to have food for me, for the kids when I couldn't function, because it took me a while. And he'd always tell me how proud he was, but he played the Grateful Dead for me all the time. And he brought me to dead shows sober. I didn't go to them when I was active. He brought me to dead shows sober, and I got to dance with deadheads, and I had so much fun. I became a member of the Wharf Rats, which are sober deadheads around here. They also exist out in California. They're uh, in San Francisco. In their meetings out there, they actually play Grateful Dead music at the meetings. It's beautiful. And uh, one time, my son had been visiting San Francisco, and he was at one of the meetings, and they uh, Zoomed me, and they were all singing uh, to me with their tie-dyes and everything on. It was beautiful, and, you know... uh, so I had a lot, a lot of good things that fit me just right. Would they fit you? Maybe not. We're all different. We all come in in different conditions, and we have different resources. Some of us are very sick, and I don't mean sick up here. I mean physically sick, and uh, some of us do have some mental issues, and I do because I'm an alcoholic of the depressive variety. I am not allowed to have pills to correct it because I have this strange twist that saves things up and then I end up taking them all at once so I can't have them anymore so what I've had to do is use the fellowship and it's worked for me would it work for you maybe not maybe not I am not trying to get anybody to follow in my footsteps and do anything that I did except for don't drink for today find your tribe and come along with us it's worth it, and you'll have, you'll have things happen you won't even believe are happening. I've had I've been across country three times. Um, I have seen the most incredible nature. I've come to a place inside of me where I'll be honest with you. I don't need a higher power anymore. I just need AA, and I have the strength inside of me to be able to do anything I need to do if I don't drink and I let the monkey mind just do what it does and calm down and find out what I want to do. And if I don't like it, if I'm sober, I can turn it around. Be always to say thankful to the people that have helped me. Some people thank God and that's cool. I have to thank the people and that has helped me tremendously. So I don't know, I guess, uh, I'll wrap it up with saying, take what you want, leave the rest, just use it so that you don't drink. Because if you don't drink, then you got to shorten. And I know people come here with other addictions and illnesses, and that's cool. And it's really all the same. You know, get the help that you need and uh, do it a day at a time. I'm always available if anybody needs a friendly ear. I never got too much trouble to not be able to listen to another alcoholic. It saves my life and it might help you. Thank you.